Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. Lee Odin is the founder and CEO of Top Rank Marketing. He blogs at the Top Rank blog. Uh, he has been on this podcast before. Uh, his previous interview with me is a top downloaded episode on this podcast. I am pleased to have him back. Lee, thank you for, for doing this. Well, thanks for having me, Eric. Looking forward to it. Now, Lee, as um, I mentioned to you before we switched on the recording device, um, I'm writing a book on business-to-business social media engagement with Paul Gillen. And um, so what I wanted to do was have a conversation with you about business-to-business search engine optimization. And, and I'd like to start off by asking you, is there anything different uh, that comes into your mind if a client were to come to you and say, hey, I really want to focus on a select, narrow audience. I'm, I'm, I'm a B2B marketer. Does that change your approach? It, absolutely it does. So, you know, there are, there's sort of a uh, three-piece, four-piece, I guess, component to SEO. And it, initially it comes down to audience and what they're interested in, what's the demand. And we know that we explore that through keyword research. But, you know, the link sources, the um, where the buyer, beha- what the bu- buyer behavior is in terms of the buying cycle, influences keyword selection. So one big piece that's very, very different is kind of the difference between fundamental B2C and B2B marketing where you, rather than having impulse purchases or people looking for what they want and buying all within the same search session, in a B2B scenario, we might have something that might be a month, six months, or a year sales cycle. And so we have folks conducting queries on exploratory terms, very general, broad terms, learning about an industry, learning about various solutions, and drilling down and getting more and more and more specific. And so anticipating B2B consumer or B2B customer demand from a keyword query standpoint is quite different than on the B2C side. That also translates into the content that you create and the links that you acquire. And so um, how, I guess, what criteria would you use to advise a client um, on the types of keywords they should go for based on, I guess, the sales funnel? I mean, is it more important to get in front of the uh, business buyer early on when they're in the research phase? Do you want to come in at the close, you know, when they're getting ready to make a purchasing decision? How do you figure that out? Well, you you know, it's... It has to do with obviously overall goals and also what other marketing and public relations activities are being executed and how can search take advantage and incorporate itself into those other activities. What content does the client already have? What types of marketing and promotions and advertising are in the queue on a go forward? And then identifying where SEO can fill in the gaps to address attracting consumers at the beginning of that buying cycle as well as at the end. Uh, 
So for example, um, let's say a company is executing some very creative public relations and content creation types of activities. If the SEO is brought into that discussion early on, they can identify some really broad terms so that when the sort of viral or what ultimately might become, become viral, uh, content promotions occur where lots of links can happen as a result, people pointing to the viral piece or the viral experience, whatever that destination is. Um, they can acquire probably some pretty good rankings on very broad terms. And at the same time, maybe that same company is publishing uh, a blog and there are a mix of keywords that represent you know, more long tail or niche terms that are more specific. And the content strategy or the content plan for the blog can make sure that it creates content using those niche keywords over time and of course, each of those blog posts that's about a niche topic would link back over to the product page so that people who discover that topic or that content through search uh, can click through and arrive over on a, a sales page, right, to, to maybe uh, interact with a call to action like download a white paper, you know, sign up for a webinar, um, you know, contact us for a uh, consultation or something like that. Do you think there's a relationship between a um, a company's price in the marketplace against its competitors and the type of keywords it would embrace based on buying cycle? I mean, I'm thinking like, you know, of, of low price companies that typically undercut brands um, by, by swooping in at the last minute after the research has been done and just beating um, the competition based on price. I mean, is that something you would look at in terms of advising an organization on what type of keywords to go after? Sure. The keywords should be consistent with the marketing objectives and the messaging um, and also taking into account demand. So in the process of doing keyword research, both from you know looking at Google keyword research tools or some of the paid tools like uh, Word Tracker or Keyword Discovery or somebody like that, um, you can get a sense for what's in demand. And if we decide in our marketing strategy is to beat our competitors on price, then our investigation into keyword research will be sensitive to uh, consumer sensitivity to keyword, or excuse me, consumer sensitivity to price, right? So we'd use low cost, cheap, um, affordable, you know, other synonyms of those sorts of phrases in conjunction with our target keyword phrases to get a sense of what the demand is. Um, if there's a lot of demand for some of these phrases, then great, we can go ahead and optimize, create content, get links, rank well for uh, those types of phrases. It often happens where the messaging calls for this maybe value, uh, you know, value keyword uh, sort of mix where there isn't demand. And we know we, we want to beat competitors on price. We want people who are looking for low-cost solutions through search. We want to attract that audience, but there isn't an audience there because our category isn't well known or something like that. That's a good example of where maybe uh, demand can be created through public relations and advertising. Uh, awareness of those keyword concepts can be generated through you know, media placements and uh, certain types of advertising or even, um, I'm low to suggest viral, but you know, things that do get a lot of buzz, which of course can drive search. Let's talk uh, for a minute about this concept of embracing popular language, and I'll give you a little um, uh, um, 
incident that I had and, and, and let you comment on it and maybe expand. I, um, I did some work with the U.S. Department of State, and uh, one of the things I looked at was uh, America.gov, which is the State Department's website um, for external communications. And on that website, there's a whole uh, area of the site devoted to what they call climate change. Uh, but when you look at what people are really searching, where the volume is, the volume is for global warming, not for climate change. Then right. you know, when you show that data to the folks at state, they're like, well, we don't want to call it global warming because that takes sides on the issue. We want to call it climate change because that's politically correct. Um, and then I have right. to say, well, you can't have your cake and eat it, too, if you want to be relevant in the conversation about global warming, which is twice the size of the conversation about climate change. You have to change the name of it. So, I mean, I, I've got to think, you know, for you, you do this all the time. I mean, how do you convince a client to go off message in search of relevance? Well, with formal communications like web pages, it, it is a fairly difficult thing to convince clients to do. So we oftentimes will use less formal content uh, or communications to incorporate creatively uh, these variations of, of uh, phrases, things that might be slang, misspellings, um, or alternative messaging that's not consistent with the broader brand that's trying to be promoted, yet we know there's a lot of market demand. So uh, one simple thing that folks will do is uh, create blog posts that use these alternative references. And you know, from a blog post optimization standpoint, um, you know, you put keywords where you would in any document, like in the title and, and anchor text links um, and elsewhere on the page. And the content that's created there, you know, might be less formal. It might be something, and again, this is very simple, but it might be, here are common references to our main topic. Uh, and, and, you know, sort of let's say one could create a blog post that's an argument for the politically correct version of uh, a certain phrase and include the alternatives within the blog post itself. Or they might create a, a sort of a dictionary or a thesaurus or something, some kind of resource that mentions all these alternatives, and they each have their own web page. And so in that context, uh, because it's a unique URL, someone can arrive into that uh, website as a search visitor, and then they can see links elsewhere on the page to go to what the company really wants them to see, if that makes sense. I think people often think about keywords as, you know, the answer to just search engine optimization, but how could you use keywords to um, help your social media engagement strategy? Well, you know, there are search-based keywords where people sit down at Google and they type what they want or what they're looking for and they go ahead and search. Um, and to anticipate that kind of keyword demand, you use a keyword research tool that aggregates what people are searching on from various sources. On the social media side, keyword research is also important, but for different reasons. Uh, you can use social media monitoring tools, which are keyword-based, to find out what phrases relevant to your brand or your message are people most often using in a social context. And, that can, and as you do that kind of social media keyword research and find out you know, how do people associate, what phrases and language do people most associate with topics that are important to your target market? And you can generate a keyword glossary there, and that can flavor your editorial plans uh, when you create blog content, when you write tweets, when you write Facebook or LinkedIn status updates, 
when you create other types of content that will be promoted on the social web and discussed on the social web. Um, and, and, and yeah, I guess that would be my short answer. Do social media keyword research um, to, to anticipate demand, not through search, but for what words people are using in comments and the links they make and the tags they use and the ratings um, that they do on social sites. Um, part of uh, keyword research is obviously validating keywords, making sure that in fact the ones you think are the right ones are the right ones. How can a B2B marketer effectively validate keywords? Well, one is, of course, starting with words that are accurate, uh, looking at words that are often used by competitors, and then bringing that in a brainstormed list into an actual keyword research tool, which will then report back a score, if you will, of popularity. So one of the first metrics of validity is how many people are actually searching on that phrase. What we do is also assign a relevance score to each phrase. So while there may be a phrase that's incredibly popular, it may be on the fringe for relevance and therefore may not make sense to target. There's also competitiveness. Uh, that is another metric that we add when doing uh, when creating a keyword glossary. Once using the keywords you've researched that you've anticipated as being congruent with your actual content and also relevant to what you're trying to achieve, what people are looking for, then you optimize your pages, you use those keywords from a link acquisition standpoint, and the final validation comes into play when you look at your web analytics, you look at your ranking reports to the extent that you can still use those, and see whether the keyword phrases that you found or you anticipated being valid and relevant are indeed not only driving traffic through search to the target website, but also resulting in any measurable outcomes like, you know, the microconversions or things that add to the sales funnel like, you know, the white paper download, newsletter sign up, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, talk to us a little bit about um, the trade-offs between quality and quantity when it comes to keyword selection, because I think a lot of people think, oh, I, the, the objective is to identify the high-volume keywords and go after those. Uh, you know, is right. that the case? You know, that's, that's a really common issue with folks who are newer in the search or in the optimization business, I found. And here's what happens. You go to a keyword research tool with your mix of uh, brainstormed keyword phrases, pop them in, the tool reports back what phrases are most popular. It's a common mistake for folks to go, oh, look, the here's the top 10 phrases that are, out of, you know, the most popular phrases. And, you know, they may be saying the same thing in slightly different ways. And from an on-page optimization standpoint, it may not make sense to try and, you know, uh, wedge those same phrases uh, across your website. You, you you, it, it's, if it reads aloud silly, then it's going to be silly to a human being and it's going to be you know, maybe good for a search engine but not from a user experience standpoint. So what we do to combat this tendency to only focus on the most popular phrases is to map keywords according to categories on the website. So if we cluster our phrases, we have a, a long list of phrases that are organized according to popularity, competitiveness, and relevance then take the next step and map those phrases to 
their corresponding web pages on the website. That way you have even distribution for what it is that you're trying to optimize for and we're giving a lot more importance to the actual relevance. It's a lot more important to have a qualified visitor come in because of the keyword they typed in and the actual con congruence to the page they arrived on as a lower quantity number than having you know 50,000 people hit a page and, and, and hardly any of them turning into a conversion. The top-rated, longest-running social media communications training program comes to Los Angeles this August 2010. Bring your laptop, log on, and learn the ins and outs of effective social media communications and search engine optimization. Reserve your space by logging on to www.newmediaprbootcamp.com. You know, I, I forget the name of the organization, but I'll, I'll try to find this um, infographic and put it up in the show notes. It was an infographic on keyword selection, and um, the three words were uh, shoes. The second word was men's shoes, and the third term was red Nike men's running shoes. And you could see mm -hmm. how, obviously, if you were selling red Nike men's running shoes, uh, obviously, there's going to be a lot less volume for a term like that. But the probability of conversion is going to be a lot higher if that's what you're selling uh, than, you know, if you came up first for shoes or men's shoes and you were selling red Nike men's running shoes. So my thought has always been that, you know, the narrow keywords are valuable if they have a high probability of conversion. Yep, yep absolutely. And, and, you know, matching up the keyword research you've done with the analytics that give you insight into conversions is, is that's the validation. That, that's what justifies. And you can also uncover, obviously, trends, things that change um, that you need to pay attention to in terms of seasonality or cyclicality of consumer demand. There might be something in the news that's driving increased interest by your target audience for certain types of content. And you can respond to those analytics and capture some of that, uh, kind of like you know PR people do, right? Um, borrow to build or, you know, associate their clients' news with something else that's happening in popular culture. I guess um, one of the things that seems like it might be difficult for B2B marketers is often when you get into those narrow terms, you know, the data is always questionable. Even if you were to compare, like, um, you know, Trillium to uh, a word tracker, um, even if you're just looking for similarity in the... Um, in the ratios between the numbers because you know they're going to be different from one to the next. Often the numbers are so low that you know it's questionable whether or not it's actually accurate data. And I could see how if you were selling some you know specialized little widget, obviously there's not going to be much search volume on that. But if someone searches it and you sell it, I mean you may only need to sell five a month to be profitable. So, right. And, and, that, and that's why the relevance score has to be considered the most important over popularity. If if the name of a thing, if the name, the way of referencing a thing, um, is is important to a business, then you know what, they're not, you know, there are going to be other activities that will drive search demand if the thing is unknown. And and as I mentioned before, a lot of times a company will come out with a thing, and the way that they anticipate it being a solution to a problem. Is, is new in the category. So they're going to have to create demand through other marketing and PR types of activities. And, you know, they're, when doing keyword research, aren't going to see a lot of volume for, for that particular phrase or set of phrases yet. 
that seems like a huge challenge, almost insurmountable for a small organization. Well, if content is a way to solve that, uh, and if content is a part of uh, the marketing strategy, then you know it's um, you can cover an awful lot of bases by publishing consistently and thoughtfully content on a, on a regular basis. Uh, you know, articles, blog posts, or whatever it is. Different types of media it doesn't just have to be text. Good point. Excellent point. Let's talk for a minute about um, uh, competitive analysis. So let's say uh, you know, small company. They're going to create the content to try to. Um, connect through search with people who might be searching uh, those terms because there's nothing coming up at this point. Um, well, at least there's nothing coming up that they know about. But how does a, uh, an organization in the B2B space really look at you know all the other small organizations uh, where there might not be a lot of data out there to try to figure out you know where the competition and who the competition is? It seems like just figuring out who the competition is is half the battle. Well, obviously, if search is the anticipated channel to attract these clients, then search is the place where one would conduct this competitive research, at least starting. And, and well, so is it, Lee? I mean, you, based on your experience, is it? I mean, when it comes to like a small niche outfit that in the past maybe they had marketed through trade shows and, and you know, trade, ad, trade magazine advertising and simple stuff like that, I mean, does it follow that when someone needs a new part for their machine, do they still go to the Granger's catalog, or are they going to Google and putting in, you know, you know, left-handed nipple for a, uh, you know, gravel elevator or whatever it might be if it was industrial manufacturing <laughs> or something? Right. Well, increasingly, those types of resources are, are online. They may not be public to Google.com. They may be behind a login for members or as part of a private network type of thing. Um, but search is increasingly part of the human behavior to find those sorts of things as opposed to going through a print. Um, you know, that's increased, that is the direction it, it's going. There's no doubt about that. It's certainly not going away from digital. And, and you, know, you know, so I think that's, you know, if you're suggesting that doing some offline research to identify competitors, well, sure, you know, I mean, the subject matter expert or person on the client side that's closest to the situation would be able to reveal, I think, uh, whether that's the case or not. But at the same time, if it's a digital marketing play, they've got to do the research digitally to identify competitors through standard search, social search, um, and other types of monitoring. Because as you as you move from the um, you know, educational phase of the buying cycle through to the decision point, obviously your query is going to get a lot more sophisticated. Yeah, it it, it may. I mean, depending on what they find, it, it may. Um, I and I can't cite the source, unfortunately, but um, or maybe it was in Quiro, um, actually, or Marketo, um, talking about keyword. Yeah, it was probably in Quiro. Uh, talking about um, going through this broad phrase, you know, um, research, evaluation, consideration, and just before getting to purchase phase in the buying cycle, going back to broad phrases just as an affirmation or confirmation that they are making the right decision kind of thing. Um, I don't think anyone can rely solely on broad phrases, nor can they rely solely on just niche phrases. Um, it often happens where someone might have gotten lots of their information elsewhere 
and then finally go to Google, let's say, and, and type in that very niche phrase, and wow, someone else shows up. And the experience of consuming that information is so compelling, they decided to make the purchase there. Increasingly, though, the social web comes into play here, I think, because there's many more opportunities to develop relationships uh, through where search is the initial discovery mechanism than what B2B marketers were using search for you know, in years past. Let, let's um, talk for just a minute about um, research alternatives, you know, research um, solutions that are out there. When it comes to researching SEO for B2B, does that uh, sort of get you started on which resources you might consult? Well, you know, again, uh, doing well, as far as research for, you know, there's a variety of reasons to do research, whether B2B or B2C. There's keyword research, there's content archetypes research, um, there's certainly research on link building and link acquisition. Can to you just, just take a moment there? Take a moment, if you would, and just distinguish between those those different um, uh, research alternatives. Well, if, if one's doing keyword research, you're trying to identify what phrases an audience that you're trying to market to is, is searching on. Uh, so if you know what people are looking for, then the, the, it follows that if you create and optimize and promote that kind of content, you'll generate more sales because you're in, the, you're, you're in front of more people. Doing um, competitive research is important just to identify what other tactics that uh, competitors might be using. Um, you identify other sites by you know, who, who is ranking for the phrases that you want to rank for, as an example, very simplistic thing to do. You can go analyze those individual competing company websites. Not all of them will be real-world competitors. Uh, you know, in, in the B2B space especially, there's a lot of academic and government uh, content that's out there that topically might compete with your commercial website. And those are things to be considered. Uh, you'd also do uh, research on who's linking to the sites that are already ranking quite well. In other words, who's influencing the influencers from an SEO standpoint? That's uh, quite valuable. Um, as far as content archetypes, what kind of content tends to travel in your category? So one could anticipate or just guess, well, what kind of content could we create that people are going to pass around? You could do that. You could waste a lot of time throwing that sort of uh, spaghetti against the wall. Or you could go to social sites, use the search engines there to identify what, um, you know, what kind of content according to your topic has uh, been the most popular and analyze literally the structure of the, the, the language, the syntax, the titles, descriptions, the actual content themselves, the, the, the page layout, and you can start to see some trends there and leverage that intelligence for how you uh, execute your own content marketing plan. You know, again, if you could, it's kind of like you know, why reinvent the wheel? Do some competitive intelligence in that sense. You're not doing, it's not uh, identifying competitors per se, but it is finding, you know, what is it? Answering that question, what is it that can go hot? What is it that people are going to be interested in? What structures will give them the best experience from a digital content perspective? And then leverage that as you make your plans for creating and promoting content on your own website. 
On May 6th and 7th, 2010, in New York City, co-chairs Elizabeth Albrecht and Eric Schwartzman, with the support of PRSA, bring you the third annual Digital Impact Conference, featuring keynote presentations from Gabriel Stricker, Director of Global Communications and Public Affairs at Google, Jennifer Preston, Social Media Editor of the New York Times, and Jeremiah Oyang, Analyst and Partner at the Altimeter Group. To save $100 on admission, visit ontherecordpodcast.com for the promo code before you register. I've always felt like, you know, the first rule of search, the most important thing is just to have the best content. Because if you have the best content, people will link to it. But when you look at, you know, the factors you can control versus the factors you can't control, like, you know, what percentage of importance is it that you have the good title tags and the keyword research and how much of it is just, you know, having great content and getting found by people who are going to link to you who have a lot of inbounds? Well, um, for a modest for, for for uncompetitive and modestly competitive situations, it's enough just to have great content because people are going to pass it around. Uh, um, you know, there's many um, many references to content is king out there. It, content, no one will know to link to your content. Well, no one will link to your content if they don't know about it. <laughs> so, if you, you it's, I think it's important whether B two B or B two C to develop channels of distribution so that as you publish this fantastic content that it's propagated to an audience and that could be done through blogs, RSS, email, it could be done through status updates and other, you know, technical tools that can create signals or IE links that would be exposed to an audience that's opted in and then they can click on those links and then be exposed to your content. Many of those people you know, virtually anyone on the web is empowered to publish now by writing their own blog or they can write comments on other people's blogs and link to your stuff. So having great content is important, but if it's not promo- if people don't know about it, well, then they'll never link to it. And, of course, we know that SEO, um, at least up until now, uh, or between when Google was founded and today, uh, links and content are the yin and yang to an effective SEO program. When you get into a really competitive category, now we're talking about, you know, fine-tuning, and definitely that is where title tags um, and HTML and code level optimization, template optimization, um, server, um, I guess I'll call it optimization, and how bots interact with content and the rate at which they uh, interact with content, the speed of how of your page loading and that sort of thing, that all comes into play for those minutia of advantage, just like, you know, a swimmer wears a full body suit or shaves their body or whatever, or, you know, some of these other things that people will do to gain just an nth degree of competitive advantage. Um, that That's when some of these more technical sorts of things will definitely come into play and be very, very important. We're talking to Lee Oden uh, of Top Rank Marketing. Lee, I've got a question here from Eric Deutsch, submitted via Twitter. He's the principal of Excel PR Group. And his question is, um, are, are, are links from uh, news releases less valuable in Google's eyes 
than links from other pages. Is there anything about the news release format specifically that would either increase or decrease the value of a link? Well, uh, uh, for the most part, uh, for documents indexed by, and we'll talk about Google since they're the big dog, do any document uh, that Google indexes isn't necessarily perceived uh, you know, as a news item or an article or a web page or whatever. I mean, certainly there are indexes specific to news and specific to blogs and so forth. But um, what, what Google's going to look at is the flow of page rank from other pages to this particular document. So um, if, let's say it's a news release hosted by a wire service. Uh, some wire services are not going to pass, or the search engines are not going to um, uh, acknowledge any page rank flow from an anchor text link from a news release hosted on that particular wire service. Uh, some of them, it will. You think about a brand new web page has no history, and if a brand new web page has no history from a linking standpoint, either internally or from other web pages, then of course any link on that news release, or even if it's an article, is not going to be of much value initially to whatever it's linking to. But if, if, if that news release or article or news item is something that gets a lot of people's attention, and if external websites link to that news release, if external websites link to that news article where you have a placement and a link back to your company, well, now, now you're going to get SEO value. So what a lot of people mistakenly do, I think, is evaluate links as a, the value of links from sources as a snapshot in time when it could be that a month or two months from now, that particular content has attracted a lot of link attention outside and now initially was very, very, uh, well, wasn't very useful at all. Didn't drive much traffic, didn't get much ranking, didn't pass any page rank, but maybe two months or three months afterwards has acquired a lot of relevant inbound links and therefore, like electricity, has passed on the power to whatever, whatever it is that it's linking to. Well, you know, your answer suggests that perhaps um, a news release uh, something which is a news item and tends to ripen on the vine faster um, is going to be less able to get those inbound links over time as a feature-oriented news release, uh, which is more evergreen. Right. Well, part, the value of it, you know, a news release, you know, people use those use news releases a variety of ways. Right. Common ways would be, you know, obviously through email, um, posting it. Uh, posting it on their own newsroom. So, you know, if Google can see it in the newsroom, then it could be a value. And clearly a common thing to do is distribute that press release through a wire service of some kind. The, the bulk of SEO value from submitting a release through any wire service isn't so much the press releases, the, uh, the press release that's hosted by the wire service, which many wire services will expire them unless you pay more money. Um, the value, the SEO value comes when other websites copy that press release. And if you've been smart about including the right kinds of links in that press release in the first place, the, the, the duplication, the syndication of that press release by other websites will result in unique inbound links from different domain names, hopefully from domains that publish relevant content. That's where the SEO, so we've sent out press releases 
and you have to, I mean, everybody does, uh, where maybe they got 10 inbound links were, were achieved. And we've had other releases get thousands of unique inbound links. Um, and that is quite valuable because all those link sources made their own decision to make that link. They, they didn't, you know, they didn't have to be convinced or persuaded. Lee, final question. Um, how is SEO changing? Well, um, I mentioned earlier that textbook SEO, uh, traditional SEO tactics don't have the same impact as a general rule as they used to. Um, the lines are blurred quite a bit between what folks are referencing as social media and optimization. Uh, one key thing I think uh, is going to be really, really important in the next year or two, but it's important to start now and that is to understand the value of social uh, optimization. So search engines that are public, like Google, fine. We can use traditional SEO tactics, and we can use social media for link acquisition and to grow communities and, and that sort of thing, to create content. Wonderful. But the search that happens behind the login on Facebook or MySpace or even LinkedIn is increasingly going to be important. So I think folks need to want to, to, to consider optimizing content within social networks, optimizing their content for search that happens behind the login. There's so much content being produced within social networks, it's becoming increasingly difficult to sort signal from noise. So I think companies would do well to consider keywords when optimizing their social content within and behind logged in, logins on social networks, as well as optimizing content for external search. Lee Oden, founder and president of Top Rank Marketing. And uh, what, what, give us the URL of your blog, would you? Uh, well, our, our site is toprankmarketing.com, or you can go to uh, toprankblog.com. And uh, what we'll we'll do we'll have links in the show notes. And also, if you can uh, dig up the link you were mentioning earlier uh, to something you had read on competitive analysis, we can include that as well. Okay, great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Eric. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at OnTheRecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com.